Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Could it be that it's time yet again for the Bible Geek, currently Robert M. Price, also known as Robert M. Price? Well, yes, in fact, it is. And I uh, want to apologize for not being here for a while. I'm under the weather. I continue to be, so this may not be a very long one, but I've got some sort of virus or something that's knocking me for a loop. Um, one note on uh, Gnostic entertainment options. Carol and I have been uh, watching the OA. Uh, I don't know if uh, you're already familiar with that. Some of you I know are. Uh, it is a fascinating Gnostic sort of a mystery. Uh, there are two seasons of it available on Netflix. It's a Netflix original series. Uh, and uh, we're up to, uh, oh, I guess, the fourth episode, fourth or fifth the second season. I know there's going to be at least a third season, but it is just fascinating. Uh, and uh, I think you'll be interested to see the uh, rather prominent Gnostic features of it. Uh, Twin Peaks The Return was already pretty darn Gnostic. Uh, uh, the Matrix, obviously, is very Gnostic. Well, this is too, so I recommend it. Okay, uh, Jason Quackenbush says, uh, I think you may have gotten Luther's and my question switched around in a recent episode. The question referring to epistemology and Wittgenstein was me, and the question before it was somebody else. Cheers. Thank you. I, I kind of thought I was mixing that up. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. And uh, here's one from Luther, also on a recent, uh, commenting on a recent episode. Uh, hello, uh, this is Luther. I have a book suggestion in response to Jason Quackenbush's call for books regarding the evolution of religion, um, as read in episode 19-011, dated March 17, on your website. I liked Robert Wright's, that is, W-R-I-G-H-T, Robert Wright's 2009 book, The Evolution of God. Wright is not a biblical scholar, but he has taught courses on religion uh, at Penn and philosophy at Princeton. The book focuses on the Abrahamic faiths, though the first several chapters, maybe 50 to 100 pages, go deeper into prehistory and pre-Judaic deep history. Okay, uh, the book focuses on one of Wright's pet ideas, which is zero-sum and non-zero-sum interactions. He basically says that when times are good and people see the benefits to trading, collaborating, and cooperating with outsiders, and thus are more likely to tolerate other religions and share ideas because they think everyone can prosper together. When times are bad, people 
circle the wagons and preach exclusion and demonization of outsiders or infidels because they perceive only one side can be victorious in that particular situation. The book was successful and earned Wright a seat at the table of many awkward debates between the so-called new atheists of those years and their fundamentalist opponents. It was a popular market book, uh, though, from what I recall, a well-sourced and well-argued one. I hope that's a useful suggestion. Thank you, Luther. You are widely read, and always uh, that's reflected in your questions, too, so I appreciate this bit of information. Okay, uh, this is uh, from uh, Elliot Mudd. I know that the 70 weeks, quote, prophecy, unquote, of Daniel chapter 9 is not about Jesus at all, yet I recently came across this confirming the prophetic date of 445 B.C. by, uh, oh boy, I can't read this, uh, by Chuck Missler, um, quote, Artaxerxes ascended to the throne in July 465 B.C. The 20th year of his reign would have begun in July 446 B.C. The, the decree occurred approximately nine months later in the month of Nisan. By Hebrew tradition, when the day of the month is not specifically stated, as in Artaxerxes' decree, it is given to be the first day of that month. Consequently, the very day of Artaxerxes' decree was the first day of the Hebrew month Nisan in 445 B.C. The first day of Nisan in 445 B.C. corresponds to the 14th day of March. The prophecy states that 69 weeks of years, 173,880 days using the 360-day prophetic year, after the command goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah will come. If we count forward 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C., we arrive at April 6th, 32 A.D. How could Daniel, writing in 537 B.C., have known this in advance? How could anyone have contrived to have this prediction documented over five centuries in advance? I have a few... Okay, I guess that's the uh, the quote and uh, I have a few queries with regard to this one is it true that by Hebrew tradition when the day of the month is not specifically stated it is given to be the first day of that month I don't know I am afraid I have no idea I, I'm assuming it's true um, doesn't sound unreasonable but I'm not familiar with the, uh, the calendrical stuff to enough to say Two, April 6 32 AD is a Sunday and not even Nissan 14 but Nissan 6. Given that Jesus died on a Friday, some say Wednesday or Thursday, and Nissan 14 and 32 AD is on a Monday, how can Missler claim 32 AD is exactly right? Um, yeah, that that is uh, uh, problematical. 
usually people peg the, or I should say most scholars think that the uh, death of Jesus occurred in 29, um, based on the uh, calculation implied by Matthew that uh, Jesus died a couple of years at least before the death, I'm sorry, Jesus was born at least a couple of years before Herod the Great died, uh, and uh, which was 4 BCE. Uh, And uh, if he was about 30, as Luke says, when he was baptized and had a uh, a three-year ministry, as uh, John's gospel seems to imply, though chronology may not be the issue there, and may be more symbolic, that would place Jesus' death in uh, 29. But there are other theories uh, than that. We we can't say which one is exact, uh, in assuming that, that there was a Jesus, right, and that he lived and died, but we, we don't really know that. And uh, so he's, uh, I don't know about the first day of the month business, but this is uh, certainly false in that no such precision is possible, uh, given the the uh, information or lack of it we have. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, one final question on another topic, Elliot says. Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 through 29 in the New International Version If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father fifty shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Some Christian apologists claim this is not rape, but just being seduced. Yet the Greek Septuagint uses a word that implies force. Who is correct? The New International version quotes above or the apologists i've always read that as um as seduction i don't know that it would be uh different because the either way the point is that she's used goods now and no one else will marry her and uh so uh if the father well, he's due the equivalent of the bride price that he would have, that the uh, fiance in a legitimate courtship would have to to pay him for taking her off his hands. And it goes on to say that if the uh, the seducer uh, or whatever he is, the gigolo, whatever, if he's such a skunk that the father cannot uh, entrust his daughter to him, well, he's got to be compensated financially in any case. But let's take a look at the uh, at the passage in Deuteronomy 22. I, I have the Revised Standard Version here, and I believe uh, that's I believe that has the. Um, the uh, gigolo interpretation, the seducer interpretation. Let's see. Ooh. Oh, 22. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's, let's uh, go back up to. Uh, uh, verse 23 and where the, the topic uh, begins. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. Why is that? Well, the gate was the judgment, the public judgment court. Um, 
uh, bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, um, so you shall purge the evil from the midst of you. Wait a minute, I thought she was a betrothed virgin. Um, well, yeah, um, as, as betrothed, she's practically married, at least for these intents and purposes. The same thing is true in Matthew, where um, Joseph, when he finds out Mary is pregnant, uh, thinks of divorcing her, but thinks better of it. Why bring shame on her? But the point is, even though they weren't technically married, it required a pretty much a divorce, because betrothal or engagement was uh, a stronger bond than it is in our culture. Uh, so it's con it'll be considered adultery. Uh, so it's the betrothed virgin and a man, you know, some guy implying not her fiancé, right? Okay, 25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But to the young woman you shall do nothing. In the young woman there is no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he came upon her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. And verse 28, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not put her away all his days. So he didn't think he was marrying her, but he was. It's, it becomes a shotgun wedding. Uh, and... Uh, Let's see, I, I think the NIV is probably right because of the uh, the verb in, in English, to seize her. That, that certainly uh, uh, Im, uh, implies that, uh, that it was against her will. Uh, so he probably wouldn't have to grab her if, uh, if, it, uh, if she was uh, seduced. That's a whole different shooting match. Yeah, so um, let's see... Yeah, um, so uh, I, I guess the, um, I, I don't know, I you know, so so I think the RSV does side with uh, the rape business, but I don't know Hebrew, so I can't uh, be sure of that. But it does sound to me that there's, it's forcible intercourse there. Oh, let's see, uh, Tim Heston says, ever read Asimov's Guide to the Bible? It seems right up your alley, given the astonishing level of scholarship he puts into his skeptic's guide to the Old and New Testament. Uh, I uh, can't quite rate it that highly. I, I know I read the New Testament volume, but this was like 40 years ago. I might have read the Old Testament, I just don't remember, but... I was kind of uh, not too thrilled with it. it. It seemed to me that he did a uh, kind of a big research paper looking at various popularly available sources like the Anchor Bible and so on, but it struck me as superficial. Uh, I remember I was stunned when I looked at what he said about uh, what he didn't say about the Epistle to the Philippians. 
uh, because uh, to me, uh, the big thing in that epistle is chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the kenosis hymn. You know, though he was in the form of God, he did not reckon uh, equality with God, something to be seized, etc., uh, no mention of that. I, I figure, you know, what kind of uh, scholarly scrutiny is, could could he have given this? So I really don't uh, think. Uh, I think maybe it was working a little too quick just to get another book added to his bibliography. But uh, sheesh. Um, I stick with uh, with Asimov with the Foundation series more than uh, these other things. I met uh, Isaac Asimov once, a big thrill, uh, twice actually. Got him to autograph my copy of Foundation at a um, evolution creation event in New York, and then uh, oh, a few years later, I, Lynn Carter invited me to the Trapdoor Spiders meeting as his guest, and uh, Asimov and George Sithers and L. Sprague de Camp and a number of others I didn't know were there, and that was a lot of fun. And as we were taking our coats off and sitting down around the big table, Asimov said to nobody in particular, somebody said something about this was not uh, made from whole cloth. What does that mean? Uh, and he probably knew what, you know, wasn't completely made up, but, you know, where the metaphor come from? And I said, well, it's, it just means it's not patched together. It's not uh, exaggerations on the truth or leaving something out. Uh, I was amazed he, he didn't know that because, of course, he does know everything, did know everything. But uh, I uh, I probably wouldn't remember anything about the event if uh, I uh, hadn't been able to chime in with the great Asimov. But an amazing fellow, no question about that. Uh Hey, um, uh, Elliot again, he says, I know you don't believe Jesus existed, but for the sake of argument, let's say the myth started with a real person. You know, uh, Elliot, I don't uh, rule that out. You know, as I always say, I'm just sort of juggling paradigms since no certainty is possible on these matters in the present state of the evidence. And recently in discussing uh, the book Creating Christ by Valiant and Fahey, I said that that they have, in my opinion, strengthened um, Brandon's case in his books, Jesus and the Zealots and uh, what is it, the Fall of Jerusalem and the Origin of the Christian Church. I can never quite get that title straight. Uh, and uh, they've made the um, the idea that there was a, a historical Jesus and he was a he was a revolutionary more credible to me. Uh, but uh, I have to admit that um, whether you believe it's a myth or or a rebel or whatever else, you know, there's a lot of things that are possible. And even if you're a mythicist, there are a handful of mutually contradictory theories about where the myth came from. I don't think we can really know. So, you know, I'm quite happy to say, all right, let's let's assume for the moment that there was a Jesus. And so, okay, back to Elliot. I'm having a hard time thinking that a man who came to to be viewed as the savior of mankind just happens to be called Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. Now, I know there were 
lot of people called Jesus in the first century, but according to the story, Mary was told to call her son Jesus, so it seems significant. Now, I know it could be a coincidence, but isn't it possible that the original Jesus was not called Jesus, and that was the name they gave him later as Jeez, I'm having trouble with my glasses, as was the case with many Old Testament uh, Hebrew characters uh, who have their names changed to fit meanings, including Jacob, changed to Israel, Esau, which means red, uh, Abram, which became Abraham, Sarai, which became Sarah. There seems to be a pattern of people's lives fitting their names. Again, Confucianism, they call that the rectification of names. Um, it's like your name. You know, as Jerry Seinfeld said, if you name your baby Jeeves, you're kind of setting his career in advance. Uh, um, uh, so what, what does that mean? I don't think you can really know, but you're right. The crucial thing is an angel telling the parents to call his name Jesus because he's going to be a savior, right? But then, of course, that's, that's a myth and uh, the uh, biographical legend, whatever you want to call it. And so uh, it, it's easy to picture it going the other way around that, uh, that the guy's name was Jesus and they decided, as you say, you know, there were loads of guys named Jesus, just like there are in Latin America today, Jesus, right? Nobody thinks it untoward to name your kid after the savior down there. Right. Uh, and, um, so there are plenty of guys named that, no doubt named after the old Testament conqueror, Joshua, um, and somebody, uh, and, and this guy, actually named Yahashua or Jesus uh, was then later venerated as some kind of savior. And they said, oh, well, that's no accident, though it was an accident. Could be. But then again, you think about uh, the Old Testament Joshua, his name was changed. Remember, it was uh, just Hosea or Hosea to begin with. And for some unexplained reason, Moses changes his name to Yahashua, adding a theophoric prefix that is, uh, you know, a, a God bearing prefix. Uh, Yahweh is salvation. Just Hosea would have been. Uh, salvation. Uh, so if even there, the, the, I mean, it doesn't say that the New Testament Jesus had a different name, though someone recently, I believe, on the Bible Geek suggested that perhaps his name was Emmanuel, and uh, that uh, after all the quotation of Isaiah 714 in Matthew, uh, and you'll call it, behold, a virgin shall conceive and uh, bear a son, and uh, you'll name him Emmanuel. Maybe that was actually the baby's name, and Jesus was added as a title later. Well, that's really kind of stab in the dark, but anything is possible. Uh, so, uh, so that what you're asking is some something similar. Uh, I mean, you have a similar sort of an idea there. Uh, so could be. Uh, in fact, like Muhammad means the uh, the illustrious one. Uh, Zoroaster, some say, means uh, he of the golden light. 
now those sound like titles, but on the other hand, people people's names often are some kind of uh, noble trait or a hope for a noble destiny or for the blessing of God on the kid's life as he grows. So eh, who knows, really? Uh, it's uh, just as likely they're titles or names. Okay, um, and finally, Elliot says, secondly, the uh, he apparently came from Nazareth, which, like Bethlehem, is supposed to fulfill prophecy. Could there have been a man who the myth started around but not called Jesus, not born in Bethlehem and never lived in Nazareth? Well, yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, Nazareth, you know, this brings up uh, the uh, – your question implies the uh, question of uh, – what did it mean in the Gospels when it referred to Jesus as the Nazarene? And it's quite likely that originally that's not that it did not denote the guy from Nazareth, but rather uh, a member of the sect of the Nazareans, the observers, the keepers of the Torah, uh, and uh, so that that wouldn't even be a a uh, what would you call it a uh, not a patronymic. Like Bar Joseph, Jesus Bar Joseph would be Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. Could mean that, but it might mean the guy uh, who was a member of the Nazarene sect. The Bethlehem thing seems to be just inferred from that passage in Micah, I think it is, right? And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's no problem with that. I mean, they they might have given him the name, as you've just suggested, because of the Old Testament. I mean, John. Joshua, according to the Samaritans, would be the uh, the Messiah, uh, the Old Testament Joshua returning, the Taheb, uh, and uh, so that could have been a title uh, as well, and uh, and the same thing is true with these. Uh, even if there was a substratum of a historical individual, the Nazareth and Bethlehem businesses may easily have been accretions just drawn from the Old Testament. Okay, Ryan Page says, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Mrs. Lot, who do Lot's daughters, I'm sorry, why uh, do Lot's daughters think they're the only ones left alive on earth? Because they do, right? You know, there's no man to come uh, in and impregnate us. So I guess dad will have to do. Uh, Why do they think this? I mean, it does imply there is nobody else on earth. Well, that's because uh, this the the Lot uh, story was originally a version of the flood story. Uh, And uh, it's I mean, the, the, the idea of God sending these angels on a reconnaissance mission to see if he wants to nuke Sodom and Gomorrah or let them go, this is exactly parallel to the Greek myth of uh, Hermes and Zeus uh, making the rounds uh, to, to see what uh, humans are really like. Do they deserve to be destroyed by a flood, which they are? Uh, it's so similar, my guess is that this business about the uh, lot being the only guy on earth uh, is a vestige of this originally being a flood story. Very good question, and I think that's a pretty good answer. Hmm, let's see. Uh, ah, our friend Luther again, the great reformer. 
I'm reading Jeffrey Butz's James book, this Butz, B-U-T-Z, The Brother of Jesus and the Lost Teachings of Christianity. And when Butz discusses the Jerusalem Conference and the Apostolic Decree, Acts 15, something tangential occurred to me. As a kid, I, like most little Christian Sunday schoolers, I assume, was taught the Ten Commandments. But why would we Gentile Christians be learning those when, according to James and company in Acts, all we had to do was avoid bloody meat, fornication, animals that had been strangled, and food sacrificed to idols, especially considering Christianity's offering and rampant anti-Semitism over the millennia, why would they have continued to teach this aspect of law when Acts said they could ignore um, all but those few choice bits of it? I assume there's some obvious reason, but I can't think of what it would be. Well, yeah, the issue in Acts 15, as in Galatians, they agree on this anyway, is whether Gentile converts have to keep all of the ceremonial law. That is, do they have to get circumcised? It basically, it boils down to, do they have to become Jews to become, Christ, to become Christians? Because Christianity is a new development in an old religion, not a new religion, uh, you know, cut from whole cloth, as Asimov would say. Uh, and and so it, if this um, is zeroing in on a bare minimum of behaviors that, uh, okay, you don't have to keep the whole darn slate of kosher laws, but how about this? At least don't consume blood. At least don't eat the meat of strangled animals uh, and uh, and so forth. It's it Don't worship idols for Pete's sake. Come on. Uh, if, if, I mean, Christians might think they have the, Gentile Christians might think, I don't have to worry about that stuff. Well, technically you don't, but uh, let's not offend Jews who are a little bit uneasy with you guys becoming Christians anyway. Uh, And it says, because Moses has his followers in all the cities of the diaspora, let's not uh, scandalize them. Let's go the second mile here. Uh, I mean, it's very much like the weaker brother business in Romans and 1 Corinthians. So I don't think this is really a question of... uh, uh, the uh, has the law passed away as must Gentile converts to Christianity keep the ethnic markers of Judaism as a people and a culture? Well, no, they don't. But let's not shock people unnecessarily. Would you at least abide by these? That's not asking much. Now, why do... Uh, Christians historically keep the Ten Commandments. Well, that, I think, is, um, you know, most of them uh, in the famous uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, Ten Commandments, most of those have to do with morality, though you do have the idolatry and the Sabbath commandments, which are not, strictly speaking, uh, matters of morality. I think that that also presupposes that Gentile Christians, and by the time, you know, as you got on into late antiquity in the Middle Ages, that was pretty much all Christians. Gentile Christians 
took it for granted, taking from Paul the idea, well, the, the Torah is over with, but these are basic laws, uh, most of them, and uh, you don't want to give the impression that Christians think Christians think it's open season on lying and perjury, murder, adultery, telling your parents they can go to hell and uh, stuff like that. No, no, wait a minute now. There, there's certain things that uh, they're not going to get rescinded as some sort of special ceremonial uh, things. Now, they, these apply to everybody, kind of like in Romans. The Gentiles who never heard of the Torah have uh, certain provisions of it written on their hearts. Uh, as Kant said, two things fill me with wonder, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So uh, I think they, th there are different um, issues here behind these uh, little uh, top 10 commandments uh, businesses. Yeah, very good question. Mm, let's see. Uh, uh, Rick Weiler. Uh, three or four years ago, I became interested in Gnosticism, but after immersing myself in it for a year or two, I came to the conclusion that the hatred of matter, which I perceived to be at the heart of it, couldn't be much of a guide to peace of mind in the modern world. I'd be interested to hear your current thinking on Gnosticism and its place in the world. I once did a sermon called The Agnostic Agnostic, where I said that uh, the key insight to my way of thinking of Gnosticism is that the vast majority of beliefs and rules of living that people have, uh, which they think are based on the revelation of a creator God, are in fact not. Uh, and that the the rationalist uh, has uh, access to uh, well to, to sufficient reason to to see what's right and wrong and in other words what works and what doesn't in in life uh, and uh, so he's not bound in the same way the religious believer is there was no law giving God or at least we don't worship one. Of course, the Gnostics and the Marcionites thought there was a law-giving God, but the, the agnostic is a Gnostic in the sense of agreeing with the ancient Gnostics. We're under no obligation to keep those laws. People who think an ultimate God commanded them, that's why we do it. They're kidding themselves. They just don't know better as we do. So we're not, uh, you know, we don't want to just, go on a binge doing whatever we want. Um, in fact, the ancient Gnostics were much stricter than most mainstream Christians. But they said, we don't. Well, the reason some weren't and did whoop it up was because they figured, hey, we're, we're not bound by those laws. Well, to hell with them then. But that was apparently a minority. But uh, atheists, agnostics, rationalists say, sure, sure, there, is, there are moral principles, but they don't come from some god. Uh, that's just a um, gimmick to control people, and some people need to be controlled. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, not a Gnostic, had the same basic insight. 
He said, you don't need uh, a revelation from God to know what is right and wrong, namely what is productive and counterproductive in, in earthly life. Uh, anybody with a decent brain could figure that out. And Aristotle, who was no Christian, nobody was yet, he um, understood that quite well. He was right on what made the good life. But revelation has to be given on on subjects that that reason cannot settle like uh if there is a god uh, what is god like a trinity uh, what what um uh, is there a plan of salvation what do you do to to attain to what is productive of life in heaven well that has to be revealed and it has been that is a higher knowledge uh, so in that sense even he was a gnostic only in that sense but the the atheist uh, is is much in much the same position uh, that uh, if it takes if you're not up to f- figuring it out and realizing that virtue Virtue is its own reward, and you have to believe in some mythic lawgiver. Well, okay, but we know better. Uh, And uh, so that stance is Gnostic. We know what's really going on, and uh, that, I think, survives. The uh, hatred of the flesh, I think, is just... um, morbid and uh, neurotic and uh, the, one of the greatest champions of modern gnosticism uh, stefan huller n- not the genius pal of mine stefan huller who writes about uh, uh, samaritanism and christianity and uh, the apostle mark as he calls him and so on a fascinating theories i just got done reading through a new manuscript of his not him but but stefan huller the hungarian uh thinker uh on he's on tape and he has a great hungarian accent um uh he was a he was inspired by jung who had more than a theoretical interest in Gnosticism. He was a modern Gnostic, and so is Huller, and uh, he admits that, yeah, this anti-flesh asceticism, that's going overboard. That's not integral to Gnosticism. Uh, So modern Gnosticism will uh, take uh, Jung as a safer guide to what is nonetheless genuine Gnosticism. And I, I kind of think that's right. There's a lot in Gnosticism, though not the raft of literal beliefs. Uh, that's fanciful uh, weirdness. But this basic idea that the law-giving God is really a kind of delusion, and we know better, uh, that's the uh, the key thing, and I think that remains very powerful. Ooh, let's see. In fact, I wonder if I have that accessible here. Let me just see if I do. Here it is, I think. Yeah, let me let me read you the sermon. Uh, it's a kind of a big answer to a brief question. The agnostic, a gnostic. One can only attain what one can apprehend of the knowledge of truth, that is, the knowledge of the unity of God who embraces in an undivided, all-inclusive unity the whole existence beyond which nothing else exists. 
This degree is determined by the individual's preparedness and capacity, and by what the conditions of time and society will allow. By acquisition of the individual's degree of knowledge, which differs from one person to the other and from one time to the other, each individual then attains an everlasting happiness, quote, which I, uh, which, uh, Oh, this isn't me, by the way. This is a long quote, sorry. Um, quote, which no eye has ever seen and no ear has ever heard and which has never occurred to the mind of a human being, end quote. That is Sami Nasib Makarim, the doctrine of the Ismailis, quoting Imam Prince Karim Aga Khan. Uh, this is another quote from 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 9. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the archons of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Him, God is revealed to us through the Spirit. We know what the word agnostic means, and probably also what the word gnostic means. The one denotes a claim not to know what most people think they know. The other, a claim to know what most people do not dream of knowing. They might sound far distant from one another, even polar opposites, but this morning I mean to suggest that they are one and the same. For consider what it is the common person imagines himself to know. First, he knows that there is a creator God whose will alone supplies the grounds for moral behavior, and that this God has revealed his laws to their custodians, the accredited princes of institutional religion. This faith seems to be the seems to the believer as sure as the likelihood of the sun's rising on the morrow, for does not everyone know it is true? Everyone he knows or cares about anyway. Others are troublemakers who ought to know better, and indeed do secretly know better, which is why they're going to hell. Do you want proof that the Babbitt believers believe in salvation by works, notwithstanding their claims to believe, Catholics and Protestants alike, in salvation by faith? Simply that if you say... Uh, you cannot believe their gospel, they think you must be putting up a smokescreen, that you would believe it, or better, admit you do deep down believe it if you weren't so determined not to repent of your favorite sins. And that is why you're going to hell, your refusal to stop sinning, not strictly speaking a mere refusal to believe a proposition offered to you. This creed is the ostensible knowledge that the agnostic rejects. The agnostic I'm thinking of is not the sophomoric agnostic, but rather the one who has won his way to relativism by taking what Don Cupid calls the leap of reason, by attaining the cognitive escape velocity needed to rise high enough above the frame to be able to see the surface of the vast ocean in which his fellow human beings ever swim without knowing there is an ocean at all. 
This the agnostic did not know either until an encounter with philosophy or psychology or the sociology of knowledge yanked him out like a fish flapping on the wooden boards of the boat. But now he knows, she knows. The agnostic knows, though perhaps he wishes he did not, that the creator God was himself created as a stopgap measure by human inquisitiveness that had no way of ascertaining the facts and is held on to by those too lazy to learn the facts of science once they are available. Now he knows that this god was a reification of human society, a scare figment to get people to internalize the all-seeing eye of peer approval and disapproval so as not to dare to break the laws and to fear eternal hell even if he should commit the crime and evade human scrutiny. Now she knows that this fairy tale seems true to the mass of humanity for poor psychological reasons, the mass mentality of the herd to which we delight to belong because we dread thinking for ourselves and the alienation we know it would bring. The seasoned and well-informed agnostic knows that this whole system of beliefs, trumped up and pumped out long ago like an artificial atmosphere on an airless moon, is the artful creation of vast socio-political commercial interests that dwarf human proportions. Once upon a hypothetical time, mere humans like ourselves created these corporate entities, these religions multinational corporations, media conglomerates, military-industrial complicities. But over time, they've come to assume a life and a leaden weight of their own, rendering them invulnerable to the reforming impulses of individuals and concerned coalitions alike. Of course, one and one's fellow soccer moms may form a committee and win the right to temporarily rearrange some sticks of furniture on the deck of the Titanic, but even that illusion is part of the trick. It is a pathetic sop cast by one of the unsuspected masters. And this Maya Muzak is perpetuated by means of entertainment, bread and circuses hyped up into equal importance with world events and eternal meanings. The result is a public that knows quite well who Regis Philbin is, but has never heard of Hegel, who knows and worships Oprah, but has already forgotten the name of Albert Schweitzer. All this the agnostic knows precisely because he does not know what the mass knows, what the herd believes. He is an elitist, perhaps proud of it, but no doubt sad at the thought. And the agnostic shares this knowledge with the Gnostic. The main difference, as I hope to show, is one of terminology and of mythology. The ancient Gnostics, claimers of esoteric knowledge, could not yet escape the mythic form of consciousness, but they did manage to do the next best thing. They escaped the gravity of the dominant myth. They managed to snap out of the collective delusion that I have just described, the supposed knowledge of the masses, of the pupa. Potatoes. 
As Valentinus, self-proclaimed disciple of Theotis, disciple of Paul the Apostle, said, There is above and beyond the Creator God, the law-giving God of the Church and Judaism, an unknown Father. Even the divine Sophia, Lady Wisdom, could not gaze upon the face of this One from whom all worlds flee away. But this unknown father did not create the world. He did emanate from himself, like rays from the sun, a whole host of light beings who collectively formed the Pleroma. The last of these was Sophia, who wanted not to be, not to be last, and by a forbidden virgin birth brought forth the bungling demiurge, the ill-starred creator who made a dreadful material world and populated it with lifeless husks. All stood thus inert till one day the Creator and his angelic henchmen, the Archons, or rulers, kidnapped some of the sparks of divine light from the Pleroma. This they used as a kind of DNA, or, as the ancients said, spermatikoi logoi, seeds of reason, to provide self-replicating order for the material world, which had hitherto been a stagnant swamp of unmoving matter. The Demiurge was, of course, the god of the Bible. He was just, after a fashion— to guide his hapless creatures from whom he vainly demanded cringing worship, Jehovah provided laws and commandments appropriate to life in the world he had created. This system was neat and tidy and worked quite well for most of the Demiurge's unsuspecting subjects. It plied them with easy answers, indoctrinated into each new generation of sheep-like believers who wanted it just that way, as the Grand Inquisitor understood. There was seeming safety in numbers, security in tacit belief, at ease in Zion, in a Zion of blissful ignorance. Bentham and Mill, fathers of utilitarianism, debated whether the more refined pleasures of the intellect were superior to beer and the World Wrestling Federation. Bentham reasoned that one ought not to be a snob, that pleasure was pleasure, equally good if one were Socrates or a swine. Mill thought not, for Socrates is able to see it from either side, and he knows the pleasures of the mind are best— that is, best added to those of the body. The ancient Gnostic was like John Stuart Mill. He felt like the prodigal son suddenly coming to himself and realizing he was where he did not belong, amid a herd of pigs. Instead of envying the pigs for being more easily satisfied than he, as he had done hitherto, he realized he had to return to his proper home. For the Gnostic, that was the Pleroma. He had to throw off the yoke of allegiance to traditional religion and traditional assumptions, and whence his dissatisfaction with what to others was a heaven, if only a hog heaven,
It was the terrible suspicion that the conventional God was not the highest truth, but that there was higher knowledge, and that knowledge was the gnosis they celebrated. It was, among other things, the knowledge of their own higher identity, and therefore of their higher destiny. On this point, let me refer to you to Houston Smith's fascinating book, Forgotten Truth. He shows how Western religions all seem to consider the goal of immortality a summum bonum of highest bliss, the pleasure dome of Xanadu. Not physical pleasure, granted, but what's the difference? As Zooey Glass says in Franny and Zooey, it's hard to see how heavenly treasure is in principle much different from earthly. By contrast, Eastern religions make the highest goal that of knowledge and being, Satchitananda. See what I mean? The Gnostic knows that the world system the average believer takes for granted is a sham, a scheme, a show, and like the agnostic, he no longer wants to be grist for the mill of the powers that rule this age, who count on his loyal allegiance to keep the scam going. What the Gnostic knows and what the agnostic knows is identical. Only the agnostic has managed to get beyond mythic consciousness. He can only honor his Gnostic predecessor and be amazed that he got so far. The agnostic views the Gnostic as Derrida views Heidegger. He was still an anto-theologian, but even his blindness relative to what we can see enabled him to see far beyond what was seen before, and it enabled us to see farther than he himself could. Beyond his X-ray vision scrutiny of the false world system, what did the Gnostic really know? The depths of God? The unity of God with all things? And what knowledge is that? It is, I think, a grand tautology, a microscope magnification magnified to so great a degree that we can no longer recognize anything. Pl place a slide with an amoeba on it beneath the microscope and you see what you couldn't see before, the amoeba being too small for the naked eye. But magnify it that much more, and your vantage point is too good, too close. You are smaller than the amoeba. Like on that Star Trek episode where the Enterprise is caught in they know not what until they can get a distant enough perspective to see it as a huge unicellular organism that it has them mired. As it was at the start, you can see nothing. The Gnostic, when we get to his claims of knowledge beyond this world, knows nothing, and he will admit it, no thing, neti, neti. His theology is apophatic. It is a knowledge of a cloud of unknowing. Tillich said that the atheist is right to reject the god of theism, for this god is an idol unless, as Tillich said, we know that the god of theism, the one the five proofs point to, is a symbol for God. And what is that god? Eckhart said it is the desert of the godhead where no man is at home. 
the agnostic suspects that no one is home there, period, and that the supposed post-theistic God is simply a name for dissociative experience. But however that may be, my point is that even here the agnostic and the Gnostic are one, for the Gnostic claims to know not only the unknown but the unknowable. Tillich says the revelation to the Gnostic is not a solution of the mystery, but the revelation of that mystery as a mystery. One does not decode it, rather one basks in it. That is something some people experience. Ontological or not, it is ontic. But at any rate, it is not discursive knowledge. It is of such knowledge that the Tao Te Ching warns, those who know don't say, those who say don't know. When we get to this point, I think we're only saying that an aesthetic appreciation separates the Gnostic from the agnostic. Go whichever way you want from that crossroads. What I think is so important this morning is what unites the agnostic and the Gnostic, what makes the agnostic a Gnostic. The Gnostic's privileged knowledge is really the same as the agnostic's. It is that vis-a-vis the beliefs of the mass, the Gnostic knows better, and so does the agnostic. The Gnostic has no more information about a higher realm than the agnostic does, nor does he claim to. No, the claim to superior knowledge means one understands this world all too well. Gnostic and agnostic alike, we know that the knowledge of the mass society is all a sham, and because we know this, we know too that meliorism is a sham, that is, the solution to which our energies may profitably be put is not to make things a wee bit better here on the Titanic, to redecorate the strange land in which we are strangers. It is rather first to know uh, it is first to keep mindful as unpleasant as it is of the fact that we are aliens. It would be nice to be at ease in Zion, but we are in a sick society, as Kierkegaard saw, and it is to be sick to be well adjusted to a sick society. Then we may emulate our predecessors, the ancient Gnostics. They knew that to broadcast their message indiscriminately would be to cast pearls before swine, and that if they tried it, they might wind up being trodden underfoot, persecuted. The goal was not to change the world, an impossible task, as the endless disappointments of electoral politics and people's revolutions alike make clear. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. No, the goal is to spread the word, to be there, to assure others, just awakening to their alienage, that they are right. There is a truth higher than God, that there is another world of truth they may attain to. It may sound elitist, but then who says who is and is not among the elite? Only each individual. 
The mass may scoff or get mad, but through argument and paradox and essay and comedy, we must raise our question, and it will be reward enough to see another prodigal come to himself and snap out of the illusion that he belongs among the pigs. Uh, I preached that sermon April 29th, 2000. Boy, oh boy, how time flies. So uh, that's uh, that's the uh, abiding validity of Gnosticism, I think. Uh, let's see. I guess uh, that's probably enough for tonight. I'll try to get back with you uh, very shortly on another exciting edition of the Bible, Be- Bible Week, <laughs> Bible Geek. Uh, thanks for being with me, and once again, I appreciate your support, both listening and donating. Both uh, make a lot of difference here. So see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.